from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. This week, we'll continue our conversation with Mark Fletcher and Rich Truesdell, authors of 1970 Maximum Muscle. With all these cars, Chevy, Ford, Mercury, Buick, Oldsmobile, Pontiac, Plymouth, Dodge, and AMC, I mean, there's an awful lot of people coming to this particular party. Surely, between the two of you, you've probably had some arm wrestling matches as to which of these cars are the greatest. So let's put together a fantasy garage. Let's hear from both Rich and Mark about which cars get in. As we did our research, we had to dive in a lot of details, including how many were made. In a lot of the chapters, we'll even make a determination whether it was a marketing and production success or whether it was a failure. And in the process, there's a few cars I haven't owned in muscle cars. An LS6 Chevelle is one of those. And I didn't realize that they had made so many, and I'm going by memory, well over 5,000, if I remember correctly, of the LS6, which was, in my opinion, the ultimate Chevelle SS. I like driving an AMC to a show that's unique when I get there. And generally, when you go to these 500 or 1,000 car muscle car shows, you'll have more than one Chevelle there. But an LS6 is still a very sought after car, but they were in every little town. They were not a special order. You got to know the dealer sold for a dollar more than invoice type car. These were ones that if you could afford them, they weren't cheap. Again, in 70, money bought muscle. They were a car that you could buy and drive on the street and have air conditioning and automatic transmission and straddle buckets and all the options you could imagine in a car that you could race on the weekend and not get beat by anybody that was in a full stock configuration. So I gained a pretty good respect for that. And I think the 70 Cobra, uh, Super Cobra Jets as well, also very prolific in its sales and a beautiful design too. I just love the body change they made in that Cobra body. And so both of those would be in my car collection. There's a picture of a B-Scheme SC Rambler that I own for more than 20 years that's in this book. I just recently sold it because I haven't been driving it as much with a few other collectibles I had. But in the ultimate garage, that would be one of them. And then something a lot more subtle that's in my garage right now, and that's a 7394 speed javelin, Mark Donahue special. It's such a great car to drive and enjoy, and it's not so overpowering that you're fighting to have power brakes or muscling the car around. It's it's just a comfortable car, like a Cougar would have been at the time, or a Mach 1 Mustang, more of the generic car that you would have. And then to round it out, it's not even in our book, and it's a Sunbeam Tiger. Oh, good heavens. Well, now you've touched a nerve. <laughs> we may have touched our lives somewhere in the past. I am co-owner of my dad's Sunbeam Tiger that he has given to my two brothers and I with a Hypo 289 that we got out of a 63 fair lane that got rolled. Because those came with a 260, except for the last Tiger 2s that had a little 289 in them. Yeah, and this is one of the 65 Mark 1As, 262 barrel car. The third one that I've owned in my lifetime. Love the cars. They're oddball enough that people ask you about them. They don't know what they are when they see them. It's a beautiful car to drive, a little more temperamental being it's British. That means it's got the positive ground and all the other characteristics of it. Boy, what a great car. And a full frame car too. That's right. It actually has an X frame underneath. But with the high 
289, the mechanical lifters, it's a pretty good balanced car. So that makes my list up. Although we photographed so many cars and interviewed owners of so many cars, my list could be all of them. And the genesis for the 69 and a half book is I believe that somebody with a lot more money and maybe less brain cells than me uh, will build a 69 and a half collection or it may be in a museum because I think that that period of time, it's pieced together, but never grouped together for the 13, it could be as much as 16 different cars that were released mid-year. That is a brilliant synopsis of not only your personal favorites, but what could really amount to a very substantial signature collection that represents an era that will certainly never come back again. Although we will talk about some of the current so-called muscle cars later on in this conversation. Meanwhile, Rich, what about you? Give me five. My first car was a 1965, this would be 1972 that I bought it. 1965 Rambler American 440H, two-door hardtop, a really nice little car, 2326 that could stay with the small block Mustangs and things like that. The ultimate version of it to me and the car that I really like to own is called an IKA Torino. And end of 1965, AMC shipped the tooling for the 6465 Americans to Argentina, thus IKA Torino, and they built a version of the car from 67 to 82 with a front clip that was designed by Pininfarina. And rather than the stamped metal dash of the Rambler American had a very European style full wood dash uh, looked more like it should have been in a Ferrari than an American economy car. I'd like to own a big block 67, 68 Mercury Cougar. And I know some people that own them, they hardly drive them. That 2005 Ford GT, because I'm so closely identified with the trip from London to Maranello and back. I did in 2005. And we, at the same time, did that trip with a Dodge Viper. There's a, a long story about how that all happened. I'm not going to repeat it here. I'm a road trip person. And in 2008, was fortunate enough to drive one of the press fleet Dodge Challenger SRT8s. I picked it up in Pasadena, drove it to Denver, and then we duplicated the route of a very famous movie. And then an all-around car I just would like to own. Carl, I know I can jump into it any day, would be any one of the Audi A8s, but I really like the ones that were that series that was built at the end of the 2000 decade going into the 2010s. So that's what my dream garage would be like. There's dozens of other cars. You know, I've always wanted to have a 68 or a 69 AMX, but I want to have a 5.7 Hemi in it. Somebody out there has probably done that car, and I'd love to own it. You know, that's a car that you could probably, you found a nice rust-free AMX roller with all the early Hemi drivetrains, the 5.7 Hemi drivetrains out there. That would probably not be a difficult car to build. A friend of ours, and I have talked about that a couple of different times, Bob and I, mm-hmm. you know, about doing yep. that. Rich, you get the Cars That Matter award for being the most esoteric weirdo I've ever <laughs> had a conversation with because I thought, first of all, a Hemi and an AMX. Well, there's nothing better than that AMX. I mean, in terms of designs, what a forward-thinking car that was. AMC really had their stuff together when they built a little two-seat sports car that was just talk about unsung heroes and unsung great designs. That AMX is something. But to put a Hemi in that, that is an incredible imagination. And and you also had me with your IKA Torino. That is a car I'd never heard of. I actually had to do a quick Google on it, and my eyes popped out of my head. And I thought, wow, this guy really knows a lot of very special information. So my hat's off to you. There's a story behind 
a little bit of the story. 1969 on a family vacation, we visited my aunt and uncle in Woodland Hills, California, out by you. And there was a local car show. And my uncle Bob, who recently passed away, took me to the car show. And there was one of these IKEA Torinos. And it was owned by the Council General of the Argentinian Embassy. Well, that's perfect. I just said, that's a really, really cool car. And I knew of its genesis even back then. And it's a car that I would like to own. I came close to buying one 10, 15 years ago. And I think the car is still for sale in Torrance, California. It's a really, really nice looking version of that car. And I've got a friend who's driven one from South America. He visited me last summer. He was on his way to Alaska and then back home to Argentina. It's like a two or three year journey for him. And we had such a good time. I've got some photos of it. I'll send them to you. Oh, what a kick. This, see, this is the best thing about programs like Cars That Matter or just conversations back when guys could actually have conversations in person. You learn so many fascinating things. This is just great to me. Now, hey, about that AMX with the oddball Mopar motor in it. A lot of guys that worked at AMC, this is what's so funny because I'm in... I know the people through the press work that I do, magazine work I do. There are guys that were absorbed into Chrysler in 1988 that now are, the last of them are just now retiring. They were responsible for many of the great cars Chrysler built in the 1990s and the pre-Dimor years. That merger of equals turned out to be such a disaster in all the ways that the Fiat Chrysler merger was not. And it's ironic now with Stellantis. Wait a minute, Stellantis, that's a pharmaceutical manufacturer, right? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, who's Stellantis now? Stellantis is the merger, recent merger of SCA and, and Peugeot. I think that's going to be great. But Fiat and Chrysler are probably, in spite of Carlos Tavares's protestations, that he's going to rebuild those brands. And you know what? He did that with Vauxhall and Opel. You know, GM lost money for 20 years on Vauxhall and Opel. And in 18 months, the guy turned those two brands around and they're making money. I think he can do the same thing with Fiat and Chrysler. And it would not surprise me by 2023, you will see Chrysler rebuilt with Peugeot-based cars. You know, everybody thinks Peugeots are beyond the 403s and 404s. It made some pretty terrible cars. They actually make some really, really great cars, having spent as much time in Europe as I have over the last 20 years. I can think of a lot of worse things than some of the senior Peugeot models being rebranded as Chrysler, because right now you got the Chrysler 300 and you got the minivans, and that's it. And that's it. That party's over. No, I'm optimistic about all this, too. I just hope that brands like Alfa Romeo can keep their dignity and their autonomy, the extent to which they have any. But again, I guess that's a whole different program. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. You mentioned that Hemi. That is a magic word. And that gets at a lot of maybe what muscle car collecting is all about today. For some reason, that Mopar, one single word, Hemi, seems to be magic. Now, they were big blocks. They were a big old bucket of 
bolts. You didn't want one in a car that you had to drive on the street. Those were truly a high-performance engine, but they've been able to parlay the name and obviously the technology that underpins what that means, hemispherical combustion chamber, to a marketeer's dream. So among all the cars that are in your book, I would have to imagine those Mopar cars with the Hemi motors, those are the ones that everybody wants. When we did our research, we found that to be true. They're probably also the cars that have the least number of miles being put on them every year. And so we made sure that we reached out to collectors for cars that were 446 pack that they made thousands of in the 446 pack. And even with a three two barrel carburetors on top of a 440 engine where the six pack or six barrel designation came from, they were actually very streetable. If you could tune a car and adjust valves because most were mechanical lifter, you could actually enjoy and street those cars. And of course, just going with a standard four barrel on a 440 got a lot of performance. We tried to make sure that we touched on not just the ultimate car, but the ultimate cars offered, including those that, again, you saw in your hometown, you rode in, you had a chance to buy and passed up. The book should be a memory lane for most people that buy it. They're going to buy the book, maybe because they've once owned a 69 Camaro or a 70 Camaro. And then they're going to learn that they only made 670 SS big block Camaros in the only year that they offered it in that body. And that's what we wanted people to understand and talk about was I had a car almost like this. They'll be sharing it with a family member, except for this, this, and this. And it should bring back the same type of joy and memories that getting behind the wheel of a 50-year-old car, even if it's got a small block two barrel in it, and cruising the back roads with the windows down, listening to the Beach Boys creates for me. We tried to make sure that reading the book and going through it would bring those same memories back and that same sense of freedom of our youth back to us older guys that and a few girls and a few girls yeah and that experienced that when the cars were either new or in my case they were good used cars when i got to driving well something that you alluded to earlier was the oil shortage you know i went to college that year and these cars became very inexpensive used cars very quickly mm-hmm. many that you know the 74 models didn't sell until 76 or later Nobody could afford the gas. Yeah. The funny thing is that I have a background in economics. And if you extrapolate the price of fuel going back to the late 50s, up until recently, adjusted for inflation, price of a gallon of gas has never been cheaper. And we're not fighting wars over it. So we live in the best of times and live in the worst of times. But these cars represent the time of their manufacturer. And 50 years later, we look back on that as as great times, and they were great times. We have a tendency to suppress the bad parts of that era. You mentioned something earlier about guys going over to Vietnam and not coming home. Years ago with Paul Zazarine, one of my colleagues since has passed away, we were starting a project on locating, and I had located a couple of cars where the parents just put the cars in the garage and forgot about them. These are cars from this era of 69, 70, 71. I wanted to tell the story of the car and the owner that never came home. What his life might have been like. What would he have accomplished? Here's the, the sad thing about it. There's still those cars out there. I know of a few of them. Now their parents are in their 80s, sometimes 90s. 
And what's happened to those cars? What is happening to those cars? They occasionally come to auction. They'll come to auction at a Barrett-Jackson, a Gooding auction, silver, whatever. Certainly Meekum. And the guys that write the catalogs for these auction houses do a really good job. I do a little bit of that work myself. I like to do more of it. And those are the stories I think as a journalist, as an author, I'd like to tell those stories. Buying this car was probably the last thing these kids did before they shipped overseas, not to return. There's a book there. I really do think that. And that that's a difference on this book as compared to the magazine articles that Rich writes. Rich does a great job of bringing a, a, the personal life of the owner and previous owners into a magazine article. And he's able to write about the life of that car and how it affected the individuals that purchased it and owned it. In the book, we didn't get that freedom, and a book doesn't give you quite that much freedom. Although we introduced a couple of personal stories in the book, like you would read in a magazine, the book becomes more factual. We still want people to have the emotional attachment to to seeing the photos and seeing the cars and the period and the era. But we weren't able to tell the story of each car like Rich is able to in a magazine. And so I think that you're right. I think there's a book out there with the stories of the cars, both the tragedies and the positives. We belong to a local car club and there's three people that are original owners of their late 60s, early 70s muscle cars. And they brought their kids home from the hospital in the back of the Camaro. Well, it's gone through four different paint jobs and restoration. But these people had not only the ability to purchase a car, but then to live their life with that car as well. And it's become a family member. Those are some of the best stories of all. And that provenance becomes priceless as the car gets older and as it eventually finds a new owner. And certainly preserving that provenance is so key. As you'd both mentioned, these were just old used cars by the time the 70s were turning into the 80s. I mean, they were essentially at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, they were just old used things. If they didn't go to the crusher, they were lucky they stayed intact at all. And of course, now many of them have become near priceless collectibles. That's sort of the magic of preservation and what makes the provenance even more special. Because when you can go back to the beginning and tell a story about a car, who owned it, where it came from, how it was different from everything else. And heavens, if, if the numbers all match, well, then that's an added bonus you can't buy. I'm expecting to take a trip to Hayes, Kansas this summer. We've got a national show in Colorado. If it occurs, I'll go on to 300 miles east to Hayes, Kansas, to find out the family of the 72 Javelin AMX I just bought that's only got 6,000 miles. We know that one brother had it, and when he passed, he passed it to his other brother out here in California who had health issues and the car went into storage. But there's a story behind that, and we're, this is actually a story that Rich is getting printed. Believe it or not, the car came with the second brother's ashes. I don't think we've ever had a story like that on this show. The long and short is it's my responsibility now as the caretaker of this car to make sure that the ashes of that second brother get returned to a family member in the town. And I'm hoping in doing that, that I'll also be able to talk to family members that can tell me more about the history of the two brothers that own the car, as well as the history of the car being preserved all those years. We're one generation away from all of these muscle cars being museum pieces only. The enjoyment to me, and I think to many others, is hearing the car go through the gears, having a little performance going down to the cruise night. The whole experience of the car is important to us, and we're hoping that the book will help people to go out and relive their 
childhood and buy a car that they used to have or, or go enjoy it with a little more knowledge and a little more experience from what the era was back at that time. And, and that's the difference between the 70 Javelin Mark Donahue and yes. the 72 Javelin AMX with 6,000 miles on it. He bought a car that he really can't drive. You yeah. know, it's got to be trailered pretty much everywhere. We're going to take some more pictures of it this afternoon, hopefully, if the weather holds. Yeah. We're going to shoot it at a vintage mobile home park mm-hmm. or a vintage RV resort. They've mm-hmm. got Airstreams there. And that's the kind of photos I want to take of the car. But that is 10 miles more on a 6,000-mile car. Javelin has how many miles on it? I have 47,000 miles on and the Mark And you're much more likely to drive it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm the second owner of that car. And I actually, after having the car shipped to me because of business requirements, I took the time and went back to Nebraska and met with the husband and wife who bought the car new in July of 1970. And actually, he admitted in front of his bride of all those years for the first time that when they broke up in July, he went and bought the car in spite of her. And she never did that in the almost 50 years they owned the car. It became her car. She took the kids to school in it. To me, that's a big part of the story of each of these cars. And each car has a story somewhere along its line, whether it was well-treated and babied like both of my collector's cars was, or whether it was beat up and raced and, and won awards and trophies. And I think our responsibility as authors is to tell the story of the car and do the research the best we can. Quite frankly, these are different kinds of stories Mm -hmm. that are easily accessible and relatable than an exotic car owner. Mm -hmm. You know, a guy that has owned a Ferrari since I always wanted to have a 64 Berlinetta. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough for five years to have a 308 GTSi, and I put 65,000 miles on it. You've probably driven a 308 three times farther than anybody else has ever owned one no, that at the time back in 1990 that was the case and i drove it down one time i was living in new jersey and i had connected with kirk white who owned the cannonball daytona and, and kirk i just found out recently has just passed he mm-hmm. had to be in his 80s when i owned the ferrari i was involved in ferrari club activities he was always involved that was one of my very first feature articles that appeared in Road and Track, that he had bought the car back after many years after having sold it, met him and his wife. Those are the wonderful experiences I have from that part of my life in that community. I'm a much more, not I wouldn't say I'm a blue collar guy, but my automotive passions tend to lean more towards muscle cars than Italian exotics. And there's nothing wrong with Italian exotics. There's nothing wrong with American muscle cars. I think there's a story out there to do, and Car and Driver did it in 1965. They did a comparison road test of a Ferrari 252 plus two and a Pontiac Catalina. I absolutely remember that. We did the GTL Ferrari, GTO. The car and driver born from February or March of 1964. And the GTO was a ringer, which is a Bobcat car. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but that's an article that was written at the dawn of the muscle car era. And I'm a historian. So I've managed to combine my passions of cars and history and for the past 40 plus years, made a living doing it. Not that many people are that fortunate. You obviously are as well. I think you know what I'm, when you speak from the heart like that, what that means for people like us. I think anytime somebody can keep a tradition going and can share a story that's important, especially about a subject that we love, it's a very gratifying thing. We'll be right back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. 
It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. I wanted to ask you guys, was there a most surprising discovery that you made as you were researching this book? What did you learn? Each chapter, we designated to each vehicle. We tried to find out something that was obscure. Sometimes that was, as we discussed before, that the count was wrong, that they said they made 2,500 and they made 1,200 of them. Sometimes it was, again, with Fords, I learned a lot on the Fords because there was really nothing to tell the owner that they were getting a super Cobra jet with four bolt mains instead of a, a two bolt main, also very powerful 428 or 429 car. So the question I guess that I have come out of that is who knew and who didn't at the time? Even the dealerships didn't know. And if you decided, well, I don't want to be driving 390 gears or 430 gears on the highway, you'd be losing the races even if you changed the gearing to for the drag strip to an identical car, because in reality, that car had more horsepower and more go-fast goodies from the factory, and you just checked the wrong boxes. That's right. Here's one that I can speak of. Back in the 2000s, I was getting involved and invited to a lot of manufacturer press launches. I got to meet a guy, Dan Frakes, through one of these press events, and his father was the lead engineer, I guess that's the title, and the car's in the book, on the 70 GSX. What I learned was that the big problem for those cars solved by his father, Ron, was the dish of the front spoiler and how low it could go without being ripped off typically by a suburban driveway pitch. <laughs> That's every car today, it seems. I can't even count how many press cars I've returned with scratches on the underside of the spoiler. And they all said, not a problem, Rich. But those were the stories and the disclosure, so to speak, that I found so so fascinating in not just doing the book, but the 20 years that I've been doing these stories on these cars. And I always try to, Mark alluded to it, I try to personalize them. Because if you don't put the person that owns the car into the story, then it's just another GTO or it's just another Shelby. The passion of the owners, mm -hmm. some of them over the years have been original owners. Those are the stories. I most like to tell. And just getting to take the pictures of the car to go along with it, is that's a bonus. But that story immediately came to mind and Dan telling me about it because it was relayed to him by his father. Because Dan had to be very young when, that, when his father was the lead engineer on that project. Mark, you alluded to the fact that within another generation, none of these cars are going to be running. So I think it is imperative to be able to fire them up and enjoy them and share them while we can. We touch a little bit about it in the book, that this could be the next muscle car era because there are threats of it dying, like the first muscle car era did. Of course, the first muscle car era died for a lot of reasons that people don't remember. Most of them related to emissions and finances and insurance costs. That's right, which is why a lot of these manufacturers kind of downplayed the actual horsepower output of their engines. In a lot of ways, the motorcycle industry is faced with the same thing. You've got some wonderful street bikes now. They're rocket ships, but only a kid's crazy enough to buy one of those things and ride it if they can't afford to insure them. And there was a transition right after the period of what our book covers. The car started getting de 
compression, basically, and stickers and decals were added. And we didn't go on to the fact of the quality of cars being built in the early 70s. What quality? <laughs> exactly. They didn't call it the Malaise era for nothing. <laughs> so there, there's a whole group of things that we didn't go on to, and those were left for another book. But again, we touch on the fact that at the end, we have a chapter that talks about the Mustang Mach-E and the other cars that are present today. The nice part about these cars, I just have to say, is that you can go buy a new Dodge Challenger with a high output V6 and get 30 miles per gallon and never pop the hood on that car for the 10 years you own it for 120, 150,000 miles. Won't have to do spark plugs. There's no points to adjust. There's no carburetor to open on a cold morning. As long as you're taking it to somewhere to get the oil changed and the air filters and fuel filter service, that car will give you all the pleasure and none of the pain that we endured in the muscle car era that we're so fond of. You know, it's really true. It's like the difference between talking to a, a guy that flies from the East Coast to the West Coast or a person that decides to do it in a Conestoga wagon. Or memories made in the wagon. Just remember that. But you're right. I mean, that was a perfect segue to talk about some of the new cars that are available today. Boy, if we thought some of those cars from 1970 were powerful, they'd best pull over to the slow lane when it comes to competing with some of the new stuff that's out there. And that comes to the point you can go to a Dodge dealer today, and I think for under $80,000, you can buy a supercar. You buy a Dodge Charger, Red Eye, Hellcat. Hellcat, that will do 203 miles an hour. I've driven one at 180, another 20 plus miles per hour on top of that for that kind of money. I'll adjust it for inflation backwards. The cars are a bargain. And that's the probably best example. Here's a thought that, that I've had. I think there's one more technological leap. They reduce the emissions another tenfold so that you can you know, literally kiss the tailpipe while it's running. We're almost to that point. Almost, almost. All the technology changes have been driven by economy. When we talk about the insurance costs being higher than the monthly payment of a car, people went in and bought their next car with a four-cylinder engine, or they on a Tempest instead of a GTO or a Renova instead of a Chevelle and all of those things. History will repeat itself. The economy of owning a car will be basically what's going to drive the next technology. And so I anticipate that our book will be a good lesson for people to go through and look at for historical review as we're about to go through another major change in muscle cars going away and, and maybe having that same push you back in the seat performance, but using the equivalent of 10 miles worth of electricity to get onto the freeway. Talk about a history lesson. This has been a fantastic conversation. Your book is a must-have. I've always been proud to have amassed a very useful and often referenced automotive library for my own personal use. And this book is soon going to be chief among the reference pieces I can rely on. Tell us, guys, where will our audience be able to acquire your book? And I believe you're also anticipating a signing at, I'm going to call it the mecca of automotive and aero bookstores. It's a little place that's been in Burbank, California forever. If it weren't for auto books, aero books, I think that they've certainly kept the flame alive for decades. I have nothing against Amazon. You know, that's where the vast majority of people are going to buy the book. If you've got Amazon Prime, you'll get free shipping on it. But support your local booksellers. I can't stress that enough. And we also anticipate going to some large shows should they occur this year. So we're hoping to be able to attend 
will also be there with another book that we've written this year uh, with Bob Riggle, who the book's about him. And so we'd like to be there and be able to meet people and sign books as well as sell them. Obviously, with the AMC connection, I anticipate being at Colorado Springs for the AMO Nationals, which is still on schedule for early June. We'll have books there, and a lot of people know me from my involvement with that. We're also open to invitations to other opportunities, especially close to Southern California, where we can go and draw a crowd, meet people that would be interested, see muscle cars and shows, and sign and autograph books for people at that time. Thanks to Mark Fletcher and Rich Cruzell, authors of 1970 Maximum Muscle, for joining us on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.